Hi, I'm Josh Shearer and I serve as the lead pastor here at Gawley Uniting Church. I wanted to personally thank you for joining us today. We exist as a church to see lives transformed with the good news of Jesus. Now, I hope this service inspires you. I hope it blesses you. I hope it builds your faith and I hope it gives you perspective that God is moving in your life. If there is anything that we can do to help you, don't be afraid to reach out on social media or email our office. Thanks for joining us again and let's get to the service. Well, if uh, you haven't been with us over the last few weeks, we have been exploring a message series, and it's quite simply called Apprentice. And what is an apprentice? An apprentice is someone who has chosen to come under the tutelage of and leadership of another. And in our culture, apprentices largely are in the trades. So you're an apprentice electrician, or you're an apprentice uh, carpenter, or an apprentice plumber, or um, I'm trying to think, apprentice Tyler. I'm trying to think of all the other trades we've had in the in the um, bathroom renovation in our house over the last few weeks. Anyone else? No, I think that's everyone. But we have in, in our culture the term apprentice is connected to those that choose to come under the tutelage of another, to intentionally learn all that they can from them about a specific craft or a specific trade. And so why are we talking about that? Well, the term apprentice is actually one of the terms that is that it can be used in Scripture to describe the disciples. So the term apprentice or pupil, student, is the same word that is used for the term disciple. Disciple, student, pupil. And so what we're doing over this series is exploring what it means and what Jesus had to say and what some of the other authors of the, of the Scriptures have to say about being a follower of God, about choosing to come under the the tutelage choosing to come under the leadership and authority of Jesus as his apprentice, as his disciple. Because the, 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 the disciples themselves had a great deal of experiences following Jesus, but right throughout Scripture, time and time and time again, those that s- seek to follow God and understand that God is the creator of all things, that God is the ultimate authority in the world, Everyone that truly realizes that in some form tries to come under the teaching and authority of God. And so this series is exploring that in a whole bunch of different ways. And this morning, I wanted to explore a passage of Scripture from 2 Timothy. It's it's, um, one of the shorter letters in the New Testament attributed to the Apostle Paul. But the context of of what he's writing is he's writing from prison. And he's writing from prison because he's been arrested for proclaiming Jesus as Lord and Savior. Now, in the Roman Empire, so 2,000 years ago, in the Roman Empire, there was one Lord. There was one king. And his name wasn't Jesus. His name was Caesar. And if you were to proclaim anything different but Caesar as Lord, then that was heresy. That was, well, it wouldn't have been the term heresy back then. That was basically treason, speaking out against the empire. And so the Apostle Paul, having been radically converted to following Jesus, is spreading this good news of this Jesus who has died, and, but who has been raised to life again, who appeared before Paul. And he had a radically transformed experience. 
And he's proclaiming this truth everywhere, and it's upsetting people, particularly those in authority, particularly those in power, religious and political. And so Paul gets himself arrested again, actually quite a few times, I believe. If you read right through the Acts, um, which is the, the history, historical account of the early church, he gets arrested a great, a great many times. And a number of times he's miraculously saved from those experiences. But this time he's not. And he finds himself in a prison in Ephesus. And if we read further on in Acts, we discover that this is his final imprisonment before he's executed for proclaiming Jesus as Lord and Saviour instead of Caesar. That's a pretty depressing place to start a message. Thanks, Josh, for that this morning. But the reason I think that matters, the reason I think we need to understand the context of what it is that Paul is writing is because it's his last words. His last, as far as we understand, as far as scholars understand, is the last recorded thing that he shares. And it's his final words to a young pastor by the name of Timothy. Someone that he had apprenticed, someone that he had discipled in the faith, who he had, he had laid hands on and anointed to be a, a pastor in the early church. And it's his final words, the last thing he will inevitably get to say. And I wonder if you had a sense that the end was near, what would you say to those that you love? What would you say to those that you care about? If you were to leave a lasting impression, a lasting moment, a lasting word, what would you say? So it's with that context in mind, we jump into what it is that Paul has to say to Timothy. And I entitled this message, Living Faith. Living Faith. Why? Well, I think we'll, we'll find out in a minute. But the theme, the primary theme of 2 Timothy is Paul teaching this young pastor, and by extension, you and I as followers of Jesus, what does it look like to, for all of this to be real in our life? What does it look like for us to take all of this seriously in our life? And so my hope, my prayer for you this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, is that you might discover or at least be challenged a little bit about what it is that it actually requires to follow Jesus in your day-to-day -day life and perhaps where there's a disconnect from what it's been like up till now. It might be an encouragement that you're getting some things really, really right but if, if you're not a follower of Jesus, my prayer for you this morning is that you would understand our heart for you, that you would understand God's heart for you, and what it means that He might give His life for you. So let's, let's open the Word and let it speak for itself. Starting in verse 1, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, I write to Timothy, my dear son, not his actual son, but his figurative son in the faith. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Then he writes, I thank God, whom I serve, as my ancestors did with a clear conscience. I thank Him with a clear conscience, as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. 
We, so we get here a picture of the deep sense of emotion that Paul has for Timothy. He loves this man, this boy, probably. Would have been certainly younger than me. You think I'm a young pastor. Imagine how young Timothy may have been. Not even early 20s, probably. Trying to lead the early church. But then he says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother, Lois, and in your mother, Eunice. You don't hear that, you don't hear that name around too, too much these days. And I am persuaded that this faith now lives in you also. What does living faith look like? Well, I think the first thing that I wanted us to notice this morning is living faith looks like caring about the faith of the next generation. Have a look at what the passage said. Paul is reminded of Timothy's sincere faith. How is he reminded of it? He's reminded of it because it was reflected in. First lived out, he says, by your grandmother, Lois, and by your mother, Eunice. And I am persuaded that faith now lives in you also. Friends, I believe that living out an active and vibrant faith is not just about us holding on to it for a personal thing. I think one of the, the gifts, challenges of the 21st century is that we live a very personal life now, don't we? That we have severed ourselves from community, not necessarily on purpose, but certainly through cultural influence. That we don't know our neighbors the way that we used to. We certainly don't live multiple generations in a household like they once did. That might have even been your experience growing up, multiple generations living under the one roof. That's not the case anymore. I certainly know for my family, it's four generations living in three different households. And that you might see your grandparents if time permits. Anyone have got that experience as a grandparent or a great-grandparent? And I remember my mum, when I first moved out of home, she would always tell me, I'd love to see you more. I'd love to see, I can see, seeing a few nods from people. She's going, oh, I think of my children. I'd love to see you more. And that tells me that there's a disconnect of some form in the relationship. I'd love to see you more. And so one of the, one of the challenges of our 21st century context is that we've lost the organic connection between the generations. But what it seems to suggest, what Paul talks about here is that he gives thanks for Timothy's faith, but it's not a faith that he discovered on his own. We discover that Paul did teach him a little bit about it, but primarily how Timothy came to faith was not his own exploration. He came to faith by experiencing faith lived out by his mother and by his grandmother. The fact that his father and grandfather aren't mentioned means they probably weren't in the faith at that time. And so for us to live an active faith, I believe one of, the, one of the things that that looks like is being intentional about handing on our faith to the next generations. I've heard it said that the, that the church is one generation from extinction. I'm not just talking about the 21st century context, I think that's true of anywhere. Because if we struggle, if we fail to live, to hand on the next generation, our faith and our understanding of faith to the next generation, it dies with us, doesn't it? It does. And friends, that's one of the reasons that I think 
And we as a church have made it such a priority of exploring and fostering and supporting the faith of the next generation. And what do I mean by the next generation? Well, frankly, anyone younger than you. You think about that. Anyone younger than you. Because I I do wonder, I don't care if you're 80, 60, 40, 20, or 5. There's someone younger than you that could learn something about the way that you live out your faith. Because you notice, Timothy's got a sincere faith, and it was lived out in your grandmother, Lois. Lived out in your mother, Eunice. And I'm persuaded it is now lived out in you. For Timothy, and I believe for young people of all ages, faith is more caught than it is taught. And so I believe there is a challenge here for us in these words from the Apostle Paul. How are we living out our faith so that it is caught by the generations beneath us, below us, coming after us? Does our faith look, does our, our, does our life look any different to the culture around us? Is it distinct? Is it unique? Do, are they noticing? Because I believe a calling upon us, a final word from the Apostle Paul would be, Acknowledge, remember the value that you have in your life of living out faith. And that I understand that for many of us, there's a tension here. Because we wish we'd done it better than we have. And I'm included in that. I'm grateful that as a father, my children are in church. But it's also a stage of primary care, so they have to be here. So it doesn't quite count. And I'm a pastor and I'm employed to be here. And so, in a sense, they have to be here too. And the desire, the deepest desire of my heart is that they would truly understand faith for themselves one day. And I also know that it's ultimately going to be up to them. And that for some of you, I know I've talked with you you about this previously. For some of you, the hurt is real that your children are not here. Or not in a church anywhere. Or your grandchildren or your great-grandchildren. But what I believe is a word, perhaps for you this morning, is it is not too late. You have a faith that is worth sharing. You have a faith that is worth proclaiming. You have a faith that is worth living out and sharing. And it might be those that are closest to you in your family that desperately need to hear and see and understand the truth of your faith. Not just by the way you teach it, but by the way that you love, by the way that you live, by the way that it is lived out. And one of the things that jumped out to me in this text was, I wonder if Eunice and Lois had any idea who Timothy was going to be. Do you reckon they had any idea? I don't think so. When they, were, when they were living out their faith and imparting it on this young boy at the time, I don't think they had any idea who, his, who he was going to become. That his name, that their names would be inscribed in the scripture, handed down for us that I have, I, I have no doubt that they would have been completely oblivious of the fact that their names would be written in scripture. Why? Because of the way that they lived out faith to the point 
that a young man could pastor the early church. Friends, you have no idea who the children and young people in your life that you have been given influence over, you have no idea who they are going to become, what it is that they might come to do. I think of my, my nana and my pa taking me to church with them and then praying with me and reading Bible stories together and all that sort of stuff. I, I don't think I had any idea that I would one day be a pastor and would be called to teach and to preach in this way. But having spoken with them, they are so grateful that they took it seriously then so that I can tell you to take it seriously now. How is our life? How are we handing on our faith to the next generation? But let's continue in, this, in the text, starting in, continuing in verse 6. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Paul wants to remind Timothy that he has a coal, an ember, something that has been placed within him by God, by the Holy Spirit, that is sitting there, smoldering, ready to ignite something powerful. And all that it requires is for him to allow the Holy Spirit to breathe into his life, to literally fan it into flames. I love camping. And I don't, know, I don't know why, but one of the things I love about camping is fire. In When it's appropriate to do so. But there's something around sitting around a bonfire, isn't there? You can look at the flames. They're compelling. They're relaxing. But there's something about the flame. It contains power. It contains heat. It contains energy. And when you wake up in the morning after a bonfire, when you're camping or something like that, when you wake up in the morning and the embers are sitting there smoldering in the campfire and all that you need to do is put a little bit of, a little bit of something on the top, some leaves or something, and then blow on those embers and it comes alight once again. And you get to sit there at breakfast in front of a fire. Friends, Paul needs, wants Timothy to understand that, that God has given him gifts. And we understand that his gifts were in pastoral leadership, not dissimilar to mine in some ways. But those gifts lie dormant until we allow the breath of the Spirit, until we allow them to be released, to be rekindled. And so I do wonder, in living our, our faith, what is it that God has given you? What, is it, what are the embers that God has placed within your life by the way of the Spirit, by the gift of the Spirit? And how might God, how might Paul be challenging you to breathe into those embers that they might 
be fanned into flame, to be seen, to be a blessing, to be light and heat to those around you, to be light and heat to our church as a community. Because we know that Scripture teaches us that, that the gifts of the Spirit are for the building up of the church, for the blessing of one another. What is it that you have been given that you are the God, that God might be calling you to fan into flame, to ignite so that it might become significant, so that it might be something that can truly be a blessing to others? What are the gifts sitting as embers in your life? That if they might have been there forever and you just never knew they were there. How might you go about fanning them into flame? Well, what does it look like? It looks like getting involved. It looks like giving something a go. It looks like asking God, God, what, is, what have you put within me that I have yet to share with those around me? And you never know what it is that God might answer with. Where are you not yet involved that you ought to be? So fan into flame. But then he continues, he continues and says, For the Spirit God gave us doesn't make us timid, but instead gives us power and love and self-discipline. So, he says, do not be ashamed do not be ashamed about our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but rather join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. See, it's God's power that enabled him to suffer and endure. He saved us and called us to a holy life. That is a life set apart, a life that looks different to the world around them. And it's a holy life, not because of anything that we have done, but because of His own purpose and grace. And this grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. It was planned before the beginning of time, but has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, Paul says, I was appointed a herald, a herald and an apostle, someone to declare and to teach and as a teacher, he says. That's why I'm suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame. Because I know whom I believed, and I am convinced that he, that is Jesus, is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day, until the day of his death. What you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in each of us. Paul teaches that he was appointed as a herald of the gospel. Did you know that the term gospel or evangelion? Can you say that with me? Evangelion. 
Say it again. Eangelion. Or some other version of that, because I don't speak, speak ancient Greek, and neither do you. But that word is the word gospel, or good news, simply. But the thing is, good news was not a Christian term. Do you know who good news, the term good news was coined by? The Romans. Eangelion was the good news declared by Caesar, that Caesar is Lord and that Caesar will look after you, and that your life is going to be great as long as you pay your taxes. That was the Eangelion of the ancient world into the Roman Empire. And so heralds would go across, across the Roman Empire and declare this good news that Caesar is Lord and that Caesar will take care of you, just pay your taxes. And just declare him as your Lord. And so it's no coincidence that Paul is appointed, he declares that he was appointed as a herald an apostle and a teacher, a herald of an Evangelion. But it wasn't of Caesar as Lord. It was Jesus as Lord. And that declaring that Evangelion got him in prison. But he just declares that I'm not ashamed of that. Here I am sitting in prison and I'm not ashamed of being here. Why? Because I know why I am here, and I know who called me here, and I know that the result of that, of what I have done, is not a source of shame. Instead, it is a source of joy, because I know that my works are entrusted in Jesus' hands, and He will be faithful and will bless me as a result in this life or the next. But this idea of, of imprisonment, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't be super proud of saying that I had been to prison or that I was in prison. There's something about our culture that really struggles with this idea of imprisonment. Now, rightly or wrongly, you can have all sorts of opinions. I don't know your story particularly about things like that. But within our culture, if we, if we learn of a friend or whatever, has, gone to, has got, ended up in prison, something within us feels a bit uncomfortable about that. And you know what that is? That's called shame. We're ashamed of the choices that a person might make that would end up land them in prison. There's a little bit of shame attached to that. And that's that very same feeling that Paul says to Timothy, don't be ashamed of me because I'm in prison for the right reasons. And in the same way, that same feeling of shame, don't be ashamed of the good news that God has given you. Don't be ashamed of the gifts that God has given you that He's called you to fan into flame. Don't be ashamed of those. Why? Because they are good. And they are for a godly purpose. And so, friends, I've got to, I've got to ask you the question, Are you ashamed of your faith? Are you ashamed of the gifts that God has given you to share with people around you? 
If someone were to ask you what it is that you believe and why, would you tell them without hesitation? Or is there a little err in your spirit? What if they don't like it? What if I lose them as a friend? What if they don't believe me? What if they make fun of me? What if they ask me a question I don't have an answer for? I believe Paul's word to us in this moment, maybe for you today, is don't you dare be ashamed of the gospel, of what Jesus has done for you, because it's not up to you to prove it, it's only up to you to share it. But what I found really interesting and and what what spoke into my heart about this was that Paul was confident about the gospel he had been called to share. Why? Because he was confident in the one that he believed in. He was confident in Jesus. He was confident in what he had seen God do in and through his life. Are you? Paul had confidence because he had seen God move in his life. Do you? Because I believe the confidence that we can have to be unashamed about what it is that we believe and why is because we have proof of it. We have proof of its power and its authority in our life. Because God didn't give us a spirit that was timid. Instead, verse 7, He gave us a spirit of power, a spirit of love, and a spirit of self-discipline. That's three things in balance, not one over the other two. Every time that we develop power and forget love and self-discipline, we get tyrants. Every time we foster love and forget about the power of God and the discipline we're called to in the Spirit, we end up with a wishy-washy, everything-is-awesome sort of faith. And if we focus on discipline over the power of of, of God and the love of Jesus, we end up with a doctrine-driven, dry, empty crust of a faith that's just angry all of the time. Instead, we're called to have a faith that is powerful, a faith that is loving, and a faith that is disciplined in living a holy, meaningful, and God-given life, set apart, different. And I do believe that when we get those three things right, when you and I can live out our faith in a way that is, displays the power of God, we're praying over people, we're seeing people's lives transformed, we're seeing people healed, or we're, we're seeing people delivered from things, or we're seeing hearts transformed, whatever that looks like to live out God's power in your life by faith, when we're living that out, And when we're loving radically, when we're loving in ways that look nothing like our culture because people have already pushed those sorts of people aside, when we love in those sorts of ways, and when we display a life of discipline that puts God central before everything else, that chooses to seek God first and believe that He will add everything after that, that gives in loving 
in meaningful ways as a priority. It sets aside time for God as a discipline. Friends, I believe when, when our faith looks like those three things, we have a faith that we can be unashamed of. Why? Because the evidence is there of its significance. But two, we are able to do without even trying what Paul commended Eunice and Lois for doing right at the beginning. When we are living out a faith of power, when we are living out a faith of love and a faith of self-discipline, that active faith is one that the, the generations below us, the generations coming after us say, that looks different and I like it. So Timothy went on to lead an early church, and he did indeed fan his fan into flame that which God had placed within him, and we know that because we are here. And so I wonder what it is, what is it that God wants to speak into your life today? Where is it that you need to live out your faith a little bit more? Is it in trusting in the power of God? Is it living out the love of God? Or is it the self-discipline of choosing God over yourself? Because I believe when we get that stuff right, we're able to hand on our faith to those that come after us. And it's not a dry and empty faith. Instead, it is a faith that is vibrant, that is alive, and that has all that it requires to set the young people up in our life to thrive with a faith of their own. We are called as apprentices of Jesus to have a a vibrant, alive, and active faith. May you this week be challenged in just one way. Not every way, because none none of us can live that out. May, May God show you one way that you can live out power, love, or self discipline this week. And see what it is that God does to transform your life and maybe even the lives of those that you love. Would you pray with me, church? Loving and gracious God, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for the way that it speaks into our life. And Lord, I thank you for the the message that Paul offered to this young pastor named Timothy. I'm grateful for the way that it speaks into our life. For Lord, you didn't call us to have a faith that is timid and shy and ashamed of what we believe in because we're worried about what other people think. Instead, Lord, you call us to have a faith that is grounded in the power that you promised would be present with us. The power that raised you from the dead. That you call us to have a faith grounded in love. Not of judgment, but instead of compassion, love and mercy. 
even when it doesn't make any sense and especially when it doesn't benefit us. And the Lord, you call us to have self-discipline, a sound mind. And out of that, the ability to choose you first over ourselves. And Lord, we're honest, this stuff isn't easy. But you call us forward to something greater. You set us apart to be holy, to be distinct from the world around us. And Lord, I'll be honest, I don't want to be normal. Because normal looks stressed. Normal looks busy. Normal looks overwhelmed. Normal looks distracted. Instead, I'd rather be holy. Set apart for you. In such, and living our faith in such a way that it's caught by the generations that will come after me. That my faith will not die with me but instead will be alive in my children and their children and the young people that look to me and to my generation. May they see a faith that is active and vibrant. It speaks a testimony of all that you have done and all that you continue to do in the world. Help us to have an active faith. Give us the grace to receive what you have for us today and the courage to live out just one thing, in your name we pray. Amen.